chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4. Revelation is the last book of the Bible. And not too long ago, we started going through the book of Revelation. This is kind of what we do here. We, we choose a book and we just walk through it. Up until this point, we've covered all of chapters 1, 2, and 3. And sometimes we'll kind of break away from our current study and get into something a little more uh, resurrection-centered, at least as the stories go in the Bible. But I think you all know enough that all of Christianity is resurrection-centered. There's no such thing as passages that aren't resurrection-centered in this book. And so this morning, we're going to stay right where we're supposed to be in Revelation. Last week, we finished chapter 3, and today, we begin chapter 4. Chapter 4 has 11 verses. It's not very long. I think we're going to like this study. It's about heaven, And up until this point, we haven't heard much about heaven in the book of Revelation. And so you're going to like it. What's neat about this is it's God showing us heaven, or really God showing John heaven, and now John's trying to tell us what he sees. In that way, it's interesting, it's fascinating, it's curious, and we like that. What I take away from studying Revelation chapter 4 is what has been impressed upon John seeing it. Impressions are a great study, aren't they? One person may look at something, and another person may look at something, and you say, what would you see? And somebody says, well, I saw a beautiful sunset. And the other person says, I didn't. I saw the grass needed to be mowed. It's it's what impresses you by the thing. What's cool about Revelation 4 is we get to see what John says he saw. What was it about this picture of heaven, this vision that John remembers? And as we can all kind of imagine, Seeing heaven, which no other living person has ever seen, must be amazing. It must be truly out of this world. But when we start talking about impressions, we usually don't try to recall the whole scene Some cultures are kind of more oriented that way, but not us typically. Usually, we go to the main thing. If you ask some of your teenagers what they like about that restaurant, they won't describe the menu like an adult would. Like we say, I like their salads. They got a lot of good salad options. They'll say, they got good bread there. It was the impression of just the free bread that hit them the most. That's how impressions go. And this study today of Revelation 4 is John telling us what he sees when he looks at heaven. Read with me Revelation 4, verses 1 through 11. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven And the first voice which I had heard speaking 
to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were... And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature, like a lion. The second living creature, like an ox. The third living creature, with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature, like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. That is a scene, isn't it? That's a scene of heaven which Jesus showed to John the Apostle, and now John is telling it to us. That's a scene. I think we must admit that often what we think about heaven is different from what we just read, right? I think we should all agree on that. Now, to be fair, this chapter right here is not all that the Bible teaches us about heaven. The Bible says a lot of other stuff about heaven. Actually, chapters four and five go together. I'm just gonna stop at chapter four for time's sake today, and I'm gonna mention a little bit of chapter five. Next week, we'll look at chapter five, but chapters four and five go together. They're meant to be read and understood and studied together, and so we'll do it on back-to-back -back Sundays. And it'll say more next week in chapter five than we will see today in chapter four. We talk about heaven in all kinds of ways, don't we? It seems to me that for many people, I dare say most, that heaven is, listen to me, basically just whatever you're into, just in a better sense. You and I have both heard heaven described in that way countless times. Whatever you're into, just in a better sense. I hear people describe heaven that way all the time. Maybe. But today we have God telling us what heaven's like. 
And so I'm not saying the way you're imagining heaven is necessarily wrong. But I want you to add this picture of heaven to it. Let's become a little more accurate on the way we understand heaven. God teaches us about heaven. And Revelation chapter 4 is one of those places. Let's see what John's impressions were. I have three points today. Number one, all of heaven focuses on the living God on his throne. For you kids that are using a listening page to follow along, that's the first point. All of heaven focuses on the living God on his throne. Chapter four begins with saying, after this I look, so that's after chapters two and three, after he gets these seven letters to these seven different churches and he writes them down. That's what we've studied the past seven Sundays here, chapters two and three, and chapter four begins with after this. And he sees a door, and at the door he hears a voice. Chapter four, verse one says, and the first voice, and then he tells us, that first voice was. Look at this in chapter four, verse one. He says, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet. If you've not been here before, then you're thinking, well, which voice is that? Which trumpet is that? If you'll turn back to chapter one, verse 10, look what it says. If you turn back to chapter one, verse 10, look what it says. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. And that was Jesus. As it keeps going into verse 12, he turns to see the voice. And remember, I pointed out that you don't see voices. What he means is, I turned to see the one who was speaking. But he says in verse 12, I turned to see the voice. You don't turn to see the voice. You turn to see who had that voice. And that was Jesus. And the rest of chapter 1 clearly explains it's Jesus. So in chapter 4, when he says, the voice that I had heard before like a trumpet, he's meaning Jesus told me. Chapter four is Jesus telling John about heaven. He said to him, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. The scene of heaven, chapters four and five, is Jesus saying, John, come here, John. I'm about to blow your doors off. I'm about to blow you away, man. Let me show you this. Look over here. Now, how he did it and how visions work and how a scene to heaven unfolds, I don't really know. It's never happened to me. But it happened here in a very rare situation, and he's telling us about it. And then he goes on. Verse 2 says, at once I was in the Spirit. No complication there. To be able to see heaven, go to heaven, get heaven, grasp heaven, understand heaven, like heaven, love heaven, enjoy heaven, want to be in heaven, you must be empowered by the Spirit. The natural man does not like heaven, want heaven, get heaven, understand heaven. That's why we comfort ourselves all the time in the way we do with describing heaven. We want heaven to be what we want it to be, just a little bit better than we experience life here. If you love cornhole here on a, on, a, on a day outside, you're hoping that heaven is just a lot of cornhole where you win a lot. And that's how we talk about it. That's the truth. That's how we talk about heaven. But notice that even John, the apostle, the one who's always described as the apostle that Jesus loved, no doubt, this guy knows Jesus. He still had to be brought into the spirit. He had to be able to see this vision and then we have the word behold. Verse two, a throne stood in heaven. Let's stop there for just a second. 
for the rest of your lives, by the grace of God, as you think of heaven, dream of heaven, long for heaven, and aim to get there, may you know there's a throne in the middle of it. And you can't get to heaven, enjoy heaven, or experience heaven and miss that throne. That is the very, I mean the very first thing he sees. Now imagine, we're told that there are streets of gold there, and there's no crying there, and the lions lay down with the lambs there. I mean, we could go on and on with all of these amazing things about heaven, right? There's going to be a lot of people there, and we can't wait to find some of them and ask them questions. And I think John had all that interest too, but the thing he sees first is a throne. But he doesn't just say he sees the throne. He quickly, immediately, right away notices that on that throne there is somebody seated with one seated on the throne. From there, John gets very descriptive, and I'm going to talk about that more in my second point. He goes through all of these different things, but I want you to jump down to verse 9. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks, look at this, to him who is seated on the throne who lives forever and ever. What a description. It's not just a throne. It's not, not just a, a king that's there. It's not just an authoritative figure there. It's not just a leader that's there. It is very specific who this is. It is the living God seated on the throne, and he always lives. He never started. He doesn't have a beginning. He's been living forever that direction in the past. He's been living forever that direction in the future. He will always live. The one true God, the living God that made us and loves us, he sits on the throne of heaven. Make no mistake about it. Whatever you want heaven to be and whatever you want to do in heaven, it is God's heaven. It is God's heaven, and all of heaven focuses on the living God on his throne. Verse 10 says, then the 24 elders fall down. It says the same thing again. Before him who is seated on the throne, and they worship him who lives forever. Do, do you see the emphasis here? Multiple times, at least three, we have a throne, him who's seated on it, and the one who's seated on it lives forever and ever. He's not occupying the throne as a good king for as long as he lives. He's not waiting for his son to grow up and take over the, over the throne or the kingdom once he dies. He's not waiting for the heir to take over the throne. The one on the throne has the throne and will always have the throne. It's God's throne. And heaven is blatantly, obviously focused on this. You do not read about heaven in Revelation 4 in the Bible and miss that. Everybody knows it. I grew up in Charlotte, North Carolina. I fell in love with basketball early. And on December 23rd of 1988, my ninth birthday, my dad and my grandfather took me to my first ever NBA basketball game. It was the inaugural season for the Charlotte Hornets. They had Rex Chapman and Kelly Trapuca and Kurt Rambis. They had all the good players. 
They had Muggsy Bogues. And that night, December 23rd of 1988, the Charlotte Hornets played the Chicago Bulls. And he had, or they had, Michael Jordan. That was my first ever game, and I was hooked. Everything there at the Charlotte Coliseum was about basketball, everything. The concession stand was basketball. If you bought a drink, it had the Charlotte Hornets and basketball on the drink. If you bought a shirt, it was shirts, it was hats. It was basketball's there. The towels there were about basketball. You could get an NBA towel, you could get a basketball towel. Everything there was about basketball, and I had never seen that before. I had played in the neighborhood or played at the park, but I'd never seen something so absolutely centered on basketball. It was so cool. In some ways, it was life-changing. I, too, wanted my life to be centered on basketball. My impression of an NBA basketball game was that basketball is a really big deal. It's important, and people love it. John's impression of heaven is that the throne is a really big deal, and the one seated on it is the one true God. All of heaven focuses on the living God on his throne. And so, when we think about doing good, making a difference, having an impact in the world, when we think about community partnerships, when we think about what it means to be a city on a hill or light in the world or difference makers, it's pretty logical and consistent to think, well, if heaven is the place where everything's all good and there's nothing bad there, nothing wrong, no evil, no crying, no dying, no sin there, no injustices there, no inequalities there, heaven is where everything is the way it's supposed to be. And this side of heaven, we struggle with that, but once we get to heaven, it will be that way. Well, what Christianity is supposed to be is a glimpse of heaven on earth. What churches are supposed to be are a glimpse of heaven on earth, albeit flawed, albeit still sinful, the already not yet is in play. But may you and I be able to apply today to our lives and certainly to our church. This is why I prayed in the pastoral prayer time that we would be helpful that if you really want to be a difference maker in this world, if you want to help your children and help your neighbors and help your family, if you want to be good for your business and good for your work, if you want to be a difference maker, then may we be a little bit more like heaven. We use the word heavenly all the time, don't we? Oh, it's heaven sent, man. It's heavenly. I was, I was in heaven with that one, right? We talk like that. But to really do that is to focus on the living God on his throne. Once somebody starts attending our church and they show more interest, we have a, a new members class. We, we, we don't really have a good name for that. It's just anybody interested more in the church. And that usually meets three or four times. And at the end of that, we go through what our mission statement is. Our mission statement is on the front of your bulletin that you have. And our mission statement says, we exist to proclaim Jesus while loving and serving both God and people. That's our mission statement. We will usually say something like this. If you want your life to be about that, loving and serving people, loving and serving God, all so that we can tell people about Jesus, then we might be a good church for you. 
We struggle with that, I know. But that's absolutely the way Revelation 4 wants us to understand heaven. All of heaven is focused on God and the one seated on the throne. Are you? Christianity can't be other than that. And so I would ask you today, would you make some changes, or at least one change? Would you create and settle a new priority for your life that says, I want to be like heaven. I want to be heavenly, focused on the God who's on the throne. What a life that is centered on God being on the throne. We cannot read Revelation 4 on heaven and miss that. Christianity, if you're not careful, will become a whole lot of things to you that it wasn't really supposed to be. If you're not careful, Christianity will become something and you're like, why am I fighting over this? Christianity here takes us to the climax. Heaven, it's a picture of heaven. And there's somebody seated on the throne in the middle. May God, by his grace, settle and ready and focus our lives in on the throne of heaven. A God that reigns. A God with power and authority. A God who is not moved or shaken. A God who rules. Number one, all of heaven focuses on the living God on his throne. Number two, All of heaven worships that living God. And when I say all of heaven, I really mean all of heaven. Look back here at chapter four. After he points out the throne, because that's definitely the first and main thing. After he points out the throne, he goes into a very elaborate, descriptive picture of what he sees. Look at verse three. And he who sat there, that's still him on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. What's that? He's describing God on the throne, and I'll be totally honest, I've got a Bible degree in college and a master's degree from seminary, and I still don't know what that means. I don't know what jasper is. I don't know what carnelian is. I know they're nice jewels. The last one is emerald, and I got an idea of what that is. I know what an emerald cut diamond is. That's the type of ring I bought Val when I proposed to her. I know what color emerald is. It's that kind of that green color. John is seeing something here, and he's trying to describe to us this amazing scene of heaven. You know how it is when you're trying to describe something. You ever asked your kids, how was school today? Good. Did you learn anything? No. Sometimes it's hard to describe stuff, right? i tell you what I'm excited about describing, though, and I have been already. This new Circle K in Fairdale. They upgraded of all upgrades. This is like a Middletown Circle K. They, the house right beside it has got a brand new amazing fence. We've got landscaping in the front, landscaping on the side. There's like 50 trees over there, shrubs, flowers. They've got two benches in the front. It's amazing. We've got more parking, more pumps. We've got everything. They upgraded. Valero put them on notice with that, and they answered back. 
And so when I'm describing the circle K, I can say all of those things. We got the roundabout, we got the green space, we're about to get the new shack in the back, and we're, we're excited about things getting better. But when you're describing something, it's still hard to do it justice. You're just gonna have to go see the Circle K for yourself. By the way, opens Tuesday, grand opening Tuesday. <laughs> Seriously. Seriously. This is what John's doing. John is doing what you and I have never done. And you're not going to. God's not opening up that vision window for you to see heaven. You then decide if you want to go, if you like it. And I, I hate to say this, and I don't want to sound disrespectful, but I hear a lot of people say that. I, I don't want to go to heaven if it's like this, or I don't want to go to heaven if it's like that. Somebody's told them the wrong picture of heaven. Shame on us. John is trying to say, y'all, it's like the most beautiful thing ever. Carnelian, jasper, a rainbow around the throne, emerald. And then he goes into this thing of 24 thrones and Seated on the thrones are 24 elders, and they are clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. I think this is the people. I think the 24 elders represent all the people that are going to be in heaven. Numbers are really big in the book of Revelation, not for us to get crazy with math-type numbers, but just for representation. In the Old Testament, the people of God are represented mostly by the 12 tribes. And in the New Testament, the people of God are represented at the beginning by the 12 apostles. 12 and 12 is 24. I think the 24 elders here in this scene just represents all of the people. They have crowns. The Bible often says that when you get to heaven, you'll get a crown. This passage ends, if you'll look at the end of verse 10, by saying they cast their crowns before the throne. These 24 elders give their throne back, which shows that they're not worthy, but he is. The 24 elders, I believe, are the people. They're clothed in white, which represents that we've been forgiven of our sins, we've been purified, we've been washed clean by what God has done. So all the people are there, and he's seeing that. Verse five then says, from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire. Now, a lot of times people get worked up and they say there's all this stuff in Revelation that you don't understand, but right after it says the seven torches of fire, it tells us what that is, the seven spirits of God, which is just another way of saying the Holy Spirit. Seven represents fullness and wholeness and completeness or something in its realest sense of strength. So it's just meaning the Holy Spirit. In this, we have a beautiful picture of the Trinity, right? You've got God seated on the throne. You've got the throne surrounded by the Holy Spirit, not to mention that all the people, but the Holy Spirit is there. God's on the throne. The Holy Spirit's there. And who's, who's telling John about this? Jesus. You got the second person of the Trinity telling John about the first person of the Trinity being surrounded by the third person of the Trinity. It's an amazing scene. And if for a second you're thinking, well, wait a second, Jesus isn't really there because he's over there with John telling him to look at it, just wait, he's coming. He's coming to the scene. Verse six says, and before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. This thing's 
big. You ever been to the ocean and walked out there early morning or late and it was low tide and you just looked and you thought, as far as I look, man, this is just water. Or y'all are lake people, actually. You ever go to the lake and get out there and wait until it's not real choppy and see how smooth it is? John's just saying it's like big and awesome and peaceful and smooth and impressive. It's like glass. I bet you've heard somebody describe the lake before as it's like glass, smooth as glass. Perfect day for tubing or skiing. It was like glass. That's what John's saying. He's just giving us all these descriptions. But then watch what happens next in verse six. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures. Now these are the weirdest things of all. They're really not. They just sound weird. Notice that it says, full of eyes in front and behind. So there's a lot of eyes to begin with. Full of eyes, front and behind. And there's four of them. And the first living creature, like a lion. The second, like an ox. The third, like the face of a man. And the fourth, like an eagle in flight. Y'all, these four living creatures simply represent all of creation, all of nature, Often, uh, 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 nature and creation is represented by the four points. you got four corners. You've heard people say the four corners of the earth, or you've heard the north, south, east, west, right? These four points, these four corners, and that's all this is. It's just a beautiful, elaborate description. The lion represents dominion, reign, and authority. The ox represents strength and power. Man represents that God created man. Created man in his likeness, in his own image. And he is wise and intelligent. We know this. The eagle represents swiftness and peace and beauty and grace. And it even says there that it's an eagle in flight. But it's a creature that looks like that, but it's got eyes on the front and eyes on the back. But verse 8 says, in the four living creatures... They also have six wings. Now, what do they do with those six wings? In Isaiah 6, we have another one of these with six wings, and it says, with two they fly, and with two they cover their face, and with two they cover their feet. But look what it says next in verse 8. It doesn't just say eyes in front and the back. It says, full of eyes all around and within, which, y'all, which just means it can see everything. Imagine if you had four eyes, front and the back, right? You could see in front of you and behind you. But imagine if you had eight and you had some on the side and so you could see everywhere. Well, imagine if you had 100 eyes and your whole body was eyes. You could see literally everything, right? That's what creation does. Everything in creation sees what God is doing. See, it sounds a little bit weird, especially if you've been reading some uh, books that you shouldn't be reading about Revelation. It sounds a little bit weird, but the Bible has taught this through and through. On Good Friday, we talked about the triumphal entry. You remember that? Good Friday, we talked about the triumphal entry, and Jesus rode a donkey into Jerusalem, and there were some Pharisees there that told everybody to be quiet and stop worshiping him. And Jesus said, don't tell them to be quiet. If they don't worship me, what will? The rocks. Yeah, the Bible has always told us that creation worships him. Let me read to you Psalm 148. Praise him, sun. Praise him, moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you waters. 
Praise him from the earth, you sea creatures. Praise him, fire and hail, snow and mist. Praise him, you stormy wind. Praise him, mountains and hills, trees, all cedars, fruit trees. Praise him, beasts. Praise him, all livestock. Praise him, creeping things. Praise him, flying birds. This is a song in the, in the book of Psalms where they sing to God. And what they're saying is that all creation, literally everything, worship him. When rivers flow, it is worship to God. When, sun, when the sun sets, it's worship to God. When the clouds move, it's worship to God. When a snake slithers, it's worship to God. When a baby's born, it's worship to God. When a baby's made, it's worship to God. God is worshiped by everything he's ever created. And when you get to heaven, everything there is going to be worshiping him. All of heaven worships the Lord. That's the scene. You want to hear what the very, 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 very last verse of the Psalms is? Not a psalm, the whole psalm, Psalm 150, verse 6. Do you all know what it says? Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Let everything that breathes, the skunk, the rat, the mouse, the cat, the dog, the elephant, the cheetah, the zebra, the leopard, us, praise him. And in heaven, they will. In heaven, they will. This scene that John is seeing is no doubt hard to describe, but it is awesome. Everything is worshiping God. It's awesome. The songs the activities, this is the way God wants it to be. All of creation worshiping him. Now, one of the things that is uh, not mentioned much in chapter four are people other than the 24 elders. Chapter five gets a little bit more clear and it starts telling us about the people and you know what it says? It doesn't just say all the creatures. It says every language, people from every place, people with every skin color will be in heaven worshiping. You don't have as much of that in chapter four, but it's there in chapter five. If you doubt it, come back next week or read it. That's what it says. But now look back at chapter eight. I mean, sorry, chapter four, verse eight. And notice what the four living creatures are doing. Each of them with six wings are full of eyes all around and within. And notice this next statement. And day and night, all day long, every day, every night, 24-7, 365, creation says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Nature, creation is worshiping God. If we can't hear it or we can't see it, that's on us. It was made to display his beauty. That's what's happening. And when that happens, look at verse 9. And whenever those living creatures give glory, give honor, give thanks to him who's seated on the throne, the four elders, the 24 elders, they fall down before him who's seated on the throne, and they worship him. So you see what happens? It goes from the creation worshiping him in heaven to now the people are worshiping him in heaven and they sing a very similar song, but it's got a little bit more words to it. Verse 11, while they cast their crowns before the throne, and that's a sermon in and of itself, isn't it? 
We live our whole lives to get a reward. That's what the Bible says, right? You live your whole life to get a reward. And when you get there, he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. And he gives you a reward. And then we get a picture of what it's like in heaven. And we give the reward back to him. Doesn't that show that we know who deserves it? Yes, it does. If he wants to give us a reward, we'll take it. But we know we're only here because of him. All of heaven worships the living God. Look at their song in verse 11. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. The worship song there is is focused in on him being creator. We've not gotten to salvation yet. And you've got to be able to see that. There's nothing here about you washed away my sins. There's nothing here about the blood. There's nothing here about the cross. This is just him him being worthy because he's the creator. Everything in heaven, all of heaven, worships the living God, whether it's a creation, whether it's an angel, whether it's a tree or a forest or a mountain, or whether it's a person, it will be worshiping God. And that's how we're supposed to think of heaven like that. So do you? And I would ask you today to make that change and make that priority in your life and be like heaven. Be heavenly by saying, I worship the living God. What we're gonna do in heaven, I'm ready to do now. I do now. I worship the living God who lives forever and ever and is on the throne. Number one, everything in heaven knows that the throne is in the middle with him seated on it. Number two, everything in heaven worships that living one on the throne. And then lastly, number three, for Easter Sunday, all of heaven knows that the living God that lives forever died and rose again. After that scene in chapter four, chapter five begins with the question, Yeah, but there's nobody worthy. In all of chapter four, there's nobody worthy to approach the throne. That'll put you in your place. There's nobody worthy to approach the throne. For as nice and pretty as chapter four is as a picture of heaven, we need to recognize that there's nobody worthy to approach God there on his throne. And it's at that point we are introduced to Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. At chapter five, verse five, we hear, weep no more, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. He is victorious. He has done what it takes to overcome. At chapter five, verse six, we hear, and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though he had been slain. It's not just Jesus there, it's the conquering Jesus there. It's not just Jesus there, it's the slain Jesus there, the dead Jesus there but now a living after he died, Jesus there. That's what they're seeing. At chapter five, verse nine, they say, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God. It is obvious 
that the focus here in heaven is about the worth and glory of the one seated on the throne, but he's unapproachable. Because of our sin and his holiness, nobody's worthy. And the Bible says they're even crying, or at least John is crying there, because nobody can approach that throne. And it's at that moment that Jesus is introduced as the one who is worthy. Now, this is why we study the Bible, because it's as rich as rich can get, and it's the gift that keeps on giving, and it never, you never get to the bottom of it, right? Who's telling this, or at least showing this to John? Isn't that awesome? Jesus is going, John, look at this. John, look over there at that. They're about to ask who's worthy to approach the throne. The carnelian and the jasper and all of that and the sea-like glass, man. He is unapproachable. John, ain't nobody going up there. None of you sinful people, man. Nobody's going up there to approach the throne. You remember Peter who said he would do anything for me? He's not approaching the throne. He denied me. He's a sinner too. Nobody's approaching that throne. Hey, what do you think, John? What do you think, John? Who's going to approach the throne? And Jesus is the one to say, hey, watch this. And it's Jesus that he points out. It's fascinating. What a study. Jesus is the one who is able to approach the throne because of his death, burial, and resurrection. Because of Good Friday and the cross and Jesus crucified and because of Easter Sunday and the empty tomb and Christ living, he can go straight to God and say sins have been dealt with, people are set free, you're forgiven of your sins and they can come in. He is worthy to approach the Father because he was the perfect sacrifice for us and whoever believes that goes to heaven with him. Whoever believes it and asks for forgiveness of sins goes to heaven with him. This is how we are to think of heaven. Heaven knows that Jesus is alive. And heaven knows that Jesus is alive, not just as the second person of the Trinity, right? You got no mention of the Father dying, and you got no mention of the Spirit dying. The focus here is that Jesus died, slain, conquered, lamb standing, all of that. All of heaven knows it. And that's why when Jesus came in chapter one, verse 17, he said, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. This is how we should think of heaven like Revelation 4 does. All of heaven knows that it's about Jesus who died and now lives and so I want to ask you for the third time, is that you? Would you make that change? Would you say I want to make that new priority to be like heaven, focused on the living Jesus who died for me? For all the things that we want heaven to be, I hope there's chips and salsa in heaven because that's my favorite thing to eat. I, I'm serious. I love chips and sauce. I could eat it every day. So I hope we have that there. But notice that heaven's not telling us what we eat. It does tell us that there's a meal there so you can know that we do eat in heaven. But heaven's not telling us what you eat. It's not telling us if we'll play basketball there. But it is telling us of the Jesus that died and lives as the one who is worthy 
that you and I should center our lives on. If by some miraculous situation, the apostle John was to show up here and sit down and say, I got a few minutes left, y'all wanna ask any questions? We would ask all sorts of things, wouldn't we? They have chips and salsa there. Do we play basketball there, right? That's what we would ask. And John would say, I do believe. You know, I don't know. But let me tell you what it's about. There's a throne. And the one that sits on it is the father of all creation. And he's so amazing that you know you can't go there. You know you don't belong there. You're not from those neck of the woods, are you? You know that heaven's not for you. And then his son walks up and says, yes, it is. Oh, yes, it is. They belong here because I gave my life for them. That's the impression that John has of heaven. May we do the world a big favor and represent heaven well. May we be heavenly. May our lives be centered on the throne and the life-giving Savior, Jesus. May we make some changes, repent of our sins, make it a priority to live for Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you on Easter Sunday for a picture of heaven in Revelation 4. God, we thank you for these 11 verses that show us that heaven is about you. Father, thank you for that. God, thank you for how refreshing it is for us to just think about heaven for a little bit. God, we praise you for that. God, we want to go to heaven. And until we get there, God, we want to represent heaven well. God, shame on us if we're giving a bad impression. Forgive us of that, God. God, forgive us if our children don't have a clue what heaven's like. God, forgive us for wanting heaven to be only what we want it to be. God, help us to focus, prioritize the throne, worship, and the risen Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.